the IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. That, that little ditty still gets me pumped up, Jess. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. IAQ Radio, we've got it for Friday, October 18th, 2013. This week, episode 302 comes to you. We're back in Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and here with me in the studio at the controls is Jessica Lawson. our sunshine girl hello Hi. jess hello. <laughs> all right and coming to us back from studio c in mckee's rocks is the z-man cliff zlotnick always a pleasure joe good to be always back a pleasure. uh with today's segments will be we'll have the iaq radio trivia question we've got an interview with steve teams today we're going to talk some chemical sensitivities of course we'll have our halftime we're just going to go right through that we've got a light a lot to talk about today uh, Dr. Weil is out on site, so he will not be able to join us for the roundup, although he was a little disappointed he couldn't. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, most people know you can listen to the show by going to the home page. Just click on the show number and it'll start to stream in about five seconds. Or you can hit the link that says go to show where you can download our shows by right-clicking on the download button. That's the Talk Shoe website. And, of course, you can get the shows from iTunes. We also have continuing education credits available for IICRC, the ACAC, and the ABIH. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com will be in Greenville in early December this uh, upcoming here for the indoor environmentalist course and we've got a couple of mold remediation courses that same week great uh, great host at Buck Mickle Technical Center let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ radio trivia question thanks Joe Yeah, 
it's funny, Cliff. Z, uh, Jess and I both have ear things going on. We're going, is that too loud? Is that too loud? Go for it, Cliff. I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer by your computer. Congratulations. To IAQ, Susan Valenti, for being the first person to identify Genesis as the section of the Old Testament that dealt with Noah and the Flood. The IAQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, October 18, 2013, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the physician whose book titled Human Ecology and Susceptibility to the Chemical Environment was published in 1962. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is Steve Teams of Airways Environmental Services. He is an indoor environmental health professional, and he specializes in working with chemically sensitive individuals along with his other more generic indoor air quality work in the New Jersey and New York City areas. His undergraduate degree was from Rutgers University, master's from Monmouth University, and that was uh, prior to starting a career. He did some organic synthesis research and development for an international flavors and fragrances fragrances company. And, you know, during this period, he he did a lot of work with chemicals, and and little did he know that, you know, down the road he would end up working with people with types of chemical sensitivities that he works with. Following that research, he was hired by a local environmental consulting company, started their indoor air quality division, and as he explained to me in some email conversations, they uh, really didn't do a lot of indoor air quality. He did some marketing for their other services and took care of the indoor air quality stuff, ended up the developing his own company that would be airways environmental services and still works with the old company from time to time he's got some interesting theories on people and why they develop chemical sensitivities i had a great time talking with him at conferences and on the phone he's a good friend of the show and before we get started i think we have some music for steve industrialized deodorized volatized for my demise don't mind me, I'm just allergic to the 20th century. Pardon don't mind me, I'm just allergic to the 20th century. Take me back in time where I'm away from pollution's contribution to our modern day. Where doctors don't just look at me and scratch their head. All right. Steve, do we have you on the line? Okay. I like the music. Yeah, that's a good one. Cliff pulls that out every once in a while. That's the You're allergic to this 20, 20th century, 21st. We better move that to the 21st. Anyway, Steve, you, you've been dealing with chemical sensitivity. I want to I get some um, vocabulary straight here first. I There's a document 
from I think it was Health Canada, and they used the term just chemical sensitivities or environment. Actually, they used environmental sensitivities, and then they broke it down into chemical sensitivities and sensitivities to biologicals. And then they went into a little more detail from there. And I guess within the chemical sensitivities group was multiple chemical sensitivities. Is that a, does that seem like a good way to kind of break this down with respect to how you deal with the issue? Well, multiple chemical sensitivities implies sensitivities to multiple chemicals. Many people are sensitized to a singular chemical. Um, certainly in uh, industrial occupational settings, it's very well known that People working with you know, solvents or formaldehyde or isocyanates become sensitized to that particular chemical. And what often happens is once they acquire the sensitivity, there's something called a spreading phenomenon, and they become sensitive to more chemicals, usually starting with chemicals of similar structure. And, and then when people become sensitive to different chemicals, then it would be more properly called multiple chemical sensitivity. And then the environmental illness and um, uh, chemical intolerance, th these are all uh, terms that, in my mind, apply to the same uh, phenomenon. I see. So the, you deal a lot with people, though, that have this multiple chemical issue and not after the spreading, I guess, takes place. Uh, yes, and uh, in your introduction, uh, not only was... I um, unaware that in the future when I was working at IFF in research and development work that I would use that chemical knowledge as an indoor air quality consultant, but I also uh, was dating someone with multiple chemical sensitivities before I got into the indoor air quality field, and when I was working in the laboratories, one of my coworkers became sensitized working with paraformaldehyde on a particular process he was working with. And uh, so I actually was exposed uh, to multiple chemical sensitivities and chemical sensitization before I got into the indoor air quality field. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Yeah, Steve, I want to go back to something that, jo that Joe brought up um, at the beginning uh, of the show when he was talking about uh, you know the Canadian take on it. And by breaking it down into uh, chemicals, uh, biologicals, I'm not sure whether or not they break it down into, you know, particulate as well. But in your experience, have you found that chemicals, bio, you know, uh, material of biological origin and particulate uh, have all caused, you know, sensitivity in individuals? and clients that you've worked with? Oh, absolutely. All of them have the potential to cause sensitization through either uh, an allergic uh, mechanism, in the case of the biologicals, proteins uh, are all capable of causing allergies in susceptible individuals who become sensitized. And um, the irritant effects of even uh, fiberglass dust, I've done investigations where multiple people exposed to fiberglass dust were diagnosed with asthma. Um, World Trade Center uh, dust uh, created all sorts of respiratory problems and sensitization, and that is thought to be from the alkalinity of the um, 
building materials, uh, sheetrock dust uh, and uh, the uh, cement and everything that uh, was pulverized into powder that people inhaled. And, and so that's, uh, yes, so you've got your, your chemical, your biological, and your particulate, and there's a lot of um, crossover between them because the particles have adsorbed volatiles on them. The biological particles also have adsorbed volatile chemicals on them, and so each of them separately is capable of causing sensitization, and I think that's well established, uh, particularly in um, occupational settings where workers' comp carriers are... Uh, you know, they don't challenge um, reactive airways dysfunction syndrome or uh, you know, work-related asthma, occupational asthma that applies to you know, chemicals and materials that people work with. Steve, I, Thanks. I, you know, I guess I should have broke it down even a little more between you know, particles and, and um, I guess, vapors. And, and I wonder if you could comment on that. How do you differentiate when you're dealing with someone who may have a sensitivity, how do you determine whether it's a, a particle that's causing the sensitivity and the, the things that that, that particle may have absorbed or if, or if it's a, uh, uh, an organic vapor that may be causing the sensitivity? And maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but let's, let's go there for a minute. Uh, okay. Well, the first thing I want to say is that, um, you know, every individual who is sensitized uh, is a separate case. It's hard to generalize uh, and, and talk about this in the abstract. So um, what I like to do, and will, you know, the only way it's possible to uh, determine um, what might be causing someone's hypersensitivity reaction, is to use the individual themselves as the test instrument. So, for example, if someone tells me that, um, you know, they're reacting to an odor, but people will come right out and say, you know, the smell, you know, they're not going to say mold. They're going to say the mold smell is making me sick. And then, then I would encourage them, coach them to do some experimentation. If they have a sample of something that has a mold odor, they can even seal it in a plastic bag. And uh, if it's a strong enough source of mold odor, that odor will come right through the bag. And now if they're smelling the bag and having a reaction, that pretty much uh, practically, you know, in a practical sense, determines that it's volatile because the other components wouldn't get through the plastic bag. Mm. Um, so if it's dust, now you don't know because the dust may be the irritant in and of itself or the dust may contain adsorbed volatiles, which is why, and I'm jumping to something else now, but uh, for mold remediation, the particle removal procedure is always the first necessary step. And then if symptoms are still being reported after a very thorough particle removal procedure, cleaning, standard uh, mold remediation uh, process, um, and test results confirm that you know, things are not only, you know, your visible inspection is confirmed that it's dust-free, the spore counts are low if you're doing post-remediation verification testing. Um, there can be residual odors that are absorbed into the porous materials. And um, so when people come return to a remediated environment and still have symptoms, and it's very clear that uh, you know, the, the particles have been removed thoroughly, now you can start to conclude that they're reacting to the residual volatiles. 
Um, that's just an example of, of how you would use the individual to determine um, what they are reacting to. And, but you can't do it without input and cooperation from the individual. Steve, why is multiple chemical sensitivity so controversial? Or is it? Do you feel it is even? Well, as I was saying before, in, um, in occupational settings, um, it is not controversial at all that workers become sensitized to the volatile chemicals they work with. Um, in a different context, uh, people who react to perfumes or fragrances or gasoline or roofing tar, whatever those volatiles might you know, be that they react to, um, people suspect that that might not be occurring because most people don't have a problem with those exposures or the levels of exposure are so low that they can't possibly have a quote-unquote toxic effect um, based on classic standard toxicological criteria. Um, in the case of sensitivities, that's all thrown out the window. It doesn't matter what it smells like. It doesn't matter whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. It doesn't matter what um, uh, you know the toxicity is. Uh, and, you know, this is why people become sensitized to common everyday compounds and react at low concentrations. And people say that you can't be because nobody else is. And uh, my real answer to you know, why it's controversial is, is really um, because people haven't had any firsthand experience with chemically sensitive individuals and, and watched what happens to them when they're exposed to low levels of pleasant smelling things that, that may trigger very severe reactions in the individual. Um, and then secondly, because there's no medical diagnostic test to confirm it. So when people do have these problems, they go to a doctor, and very often the doctor doesn't find anything wrong with them, and then may even uh, suggest that it isn't a real problem, that it's all in their heads because they're not presenting with something that they can find. The doctor can't see anything. And I think that's what makes it controversial. And then there's a lot of politics behind the whole issue in terms of, um, uh, you know, if someone is sick, who's responsible for it? And then a lot of, you know, litigation and experts uh, now take sides on the subject. And once you've got two sides of the story for litigation purposes, it's hard to uh, move forward with the science of it. Let me follow up on that, Steve. I, I think another reason we see some controversy, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I hear people say that, and, and I, you know, I, this is kind of a classical definition issue. I have to ignore that for a moment. But anyway, um, I've seen it where people are exposed to, let's say, formaldehyde in the workplace at a high level, but then they seem to have sensitivities to a lot of other things that they weren't necessarily exposed to at a high level in the workplace. And I think that's part of the controversy. I think people have a hard time believing that, you know, that exposure to that one particular chemical compound or chemical um, would lead to sensitivities to a whole wide range of other things that, you know, we ex we're exposed to in everyday daily living. Yeah, that, that's what I referred to before as the spreading phenomenon. And it's in chemical sensitivity circles, it's, it's very well known. This is what happens. People become sensitized to a mold VOC, a microbial volatile organic compound. Um, 
And then after their experience in the moldy building, they start to become chemically sensitive to fragrance compounds and, and you know, gasoline, you know, other normal types of uh, exposures that someone would receive being out in the world. And um, their reaction is, uh, is severe. And uh, it's neurologic, which is something I want to expand on uh, as we go forward. But uh, let, let me ask another question now. Steve, I'd like to talk, you know, you've mentioned uh, odor, and I think one of the unique things about odor is that, you know, besides an odor, you know, being an irritant, odor can trigger uh, emotion, you know, uh, you know, experiential, good, bad, indifferent. Uh, can you comment on just, you know, the role that odor plays? Yeah, sure. It, it's... um associational is the term, and um, it isn't inherent in the molecule that uh, is detected by the olfactory sense that the um, association is good or bad. For example, if uh, a six-year-old child had been lost in a pine forest for half a day when he was a kid, you know, this country fresh pine scent you know, may trigger a panic attack instead of, uh, you know, them feeling like they're out in the country. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it, it isn't about the hedonics of the scent, meaning whether it's uh, they like it or don't like it. Pleasant chemical exposures uh, uh, can have the same neurologic effect as an unpleasant chemical exposure in someone who is sensitized to the chemical. And then um, what also happens is, when someone is chemically sensitive and has a severe physiologic reaction to that chemical exposure, the sense of smell very often is heightened. People who become sensitized often have, will tell you that they can smell everything you know, at, at levels that other people can't smell things at. And, and the reason is that it becomes an early warning signal so that you do have a reaction to the smell if you're chemically sensitive, and but that reaction is not unlike you know someone you know running at you with a samurai sword, where you 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 go into the fight or flight response because the odor is associated with the physiologic effect that will occur if you remain exposed. So the smell does trigger a real reaction through cognitive thought and association which is absolutely separate and distinct from the chemical exposure causing the neurologic inflammatory effect. You understand that there's a huge distinction, but they're related in that when the person smells something, it may trigger in their minds, you know, the fight or flight response that I'd better get out of here before I start feeling the physiologic effect of the exposure to that chemical that I consensus here because I smell it. And, and it seems like it would make sense to me, and I wonder if it makes sense to you, that the combination of those two things could exacerbate the situation in that, you know, if you you know that you're entering an area or whatever that that in the past has caused you these reactions, um, those two things combined might make the reaction worse than what it may normally have been. Would that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Um, they're, they're two separate components, but what they have in common is 
they're mediated through the autonomic nervous system, and that's why one can compound the other. Yes. Okay. Now let me let me before we go further, I want to go further on the the neurological component and, and talk a little bit about you know the health issues that people have. But before I do, I'd like you to kind of explain for listeners, if you would, and for me, what type of reactions do you see in clients with these chemical sensitivities? So what what physical manifestation occurs when someone who is uh, sensitive to whatever chemical is exposed to that chemical? Is it common to be similar types of reactions, or do individuals react differently? Is there some common thread that runs through these reactions? Uh, individuals react differently. That's absolutely true. And the, the, the common thread is that it's neurologic. Um, and, and as far as what symptoms people report uh, as far as, you know, when they're exposed to a chemical that, that causes the symptoms, the, um, the real issue is, I'm getting a call, I don't know if you can hear that tone. No. But, um, the, I'm getting distracted, sorry. Nope. Um, You're okay. talking about the world. Multiple logic. organ systems are affected. So the symptoms can range <clears throat> anywhere from you know, migraine headache or um, throat irritation, nasal sinus congestion, um, reactive airways dysfunction, asthma-like uh, respiratory symptoms. Um, people can, I've had clients report to me that they've been diagnosed with adrenal fatigue, that um, they have uh, fibromyalgia symptoms, muscle aches and pains, rheumatoid arthritis symptoms from joint inflammation as a result of a brief exposure to perfumes or a chemical, um, abdominal bloating, uh, intestinal issues, irritable bowel syndrome. And, and what they have in common is they're mediated through the autonomic nervous system and they fall into the category of neurogenic inflammatory reactions which uh, Dr. William Meggs has uh, published about um, wonderfully, and uh, uh, some of his um, peer-reviewed publications and environmental health perspectives, if, if someone were to Google uh, Dr. William Meggs, M-E-G-G-S, and the term neurogenic inflammation, you would see his hypotheses of how this is all occurring, and he really lays it all out in a wonderful diagrammatic way and explains how the um, trigeminal nerve has certain neural receptors that trigger these nerve impulses that can go through all parts of the body. And, and one of the examples he uses is, you know, why can someone eat a food and their skin breaks out in hives as a food allergy. And the answer is that the nerve endings release these inflammatory agents. Uh, and and uh, there are efferent and uh, efferent nerves. Uh, but he describes it very, very clearly in his uh, papers. He's written several papers on the subject. And that's where I get some of my confidence in understanding. I don't understand it at the depth, of course, that he's even writing at. But... Um, if you were to read it, you would just see how much sense it all makes in a plain way. 
um, when he describes neurogenic inflammation as a cause of all of these multiple organ symptoms system symptoms um, related to low-level chemical exposures. So even up to and including the irritable irritable bowel syndrome, does he see the same thing in these in the patients that he looks at? Uh, yes, yes, he does. And um, uh, there's another uh, doctor. He's not a medical doctor. He's a neurobiologist at uh, Washington State University. Is Dr. Martin Paul P A L L, and he has written some really good papers describing. Um, the vanilloid receptor of the trigeminal nerve as the putative target of chemical sensitivities. And that's actually the title of his paper is uh, vanilloid receptor, V-A-N-I-L-L-O-I-D receptor. And it is also known as the capsaicin receptor. And it is literally a sixth sense. It is not a taste. It is not a smell receptor. It is in the trigeminal nerve in the head, and all of those sensations that go to uh, stinging or pain in the uh, sinus cavities, or you know, people you know, burning in the nose, or burning in the throat, or burning lips, or you know, tingling sensations, or the back of the tongue, where there's a large concentration of these sensory nerves as part of this system, and it is the innate chemical sensor meaning that it, its purpose is to detect chemical heat and chemical coolness. Chemical heat, most commonly the capsaicin receptors, pepper and uh, hot ginger, hot cinnamon, will all stimulate this nerve. It's not a smell. It's not a taste. It's a heat sensation. It's a pain sensation, or menthol is a sensation of coolness. That is sensed by this you know, group of sensory neurons. And... Um, once there is a receptor mechanism created, uh, and, and that's something else that I, I, I want to talk about, that uh, when sensitization occurs, what's happening? Right? What causes anyone to become sensitized to anything? How do people become allergic? Who becomes allergic? When do they become allergic? And, and that's what I have been thinking about and researching on my own, um, just looking for literature, I'm not doing any experimentation, I'm not a, you know, a clinical researcher in any way, but my observations uh, are consistent with a lot of what I'm reading on the topic of um, acquired sensitivities. And uh, uh, Dr. Claudia Miller uh, has coined the phrase toxicant-induced loss of tolerance, tilt. Um, I don't believe it's a loss of tolerance. I don't even like the term. What it is is an acquisition of a receptor mechanism. And just like any allergic sensitization, what's happening is the body's adaptive immune system is creating a protein, three-dimensional protein, that's specific in, in the case of allergies to proteins, whatever it might be, cat, dog, dust mite, foods. Um, you've got the immunoglobulin protein created by the adaptive immune system that is a memory mechanism that recognizes certain structural you know, patterns and chemicals from very specific sources. 
This is what immunity is all about as well. Someone gets a vaccine. Um, what happens is you know, their adaptive immune system creates a memory mechanism so that next time the body is exposed to a particular virus or bacteria, it recognizes it and mounts a, a, a defense, which usually involves inflammation, always involves inflammation. So an allergic inflammatory response is very, very analogous to an irritant chemical inflammatory response. The major difference being the receptor is not on the surface of a mast cell as it is in allergies with chemical sensitivities where the antigen antibody complex is recognized by receptor on the mast cell, releases histamine, and that's the allergic inflammatory response. In the case of chemical sensitivities, there's a sensory neuron that has a receptor that recognizes a particular chemical or group of chemicals or similar chemicals. And um, in the case of multiple chemical sensitivities, and it triggers a neurologic inflammatory response mediated through the autonomic nervous system. And it, so it's analogous to the acquisition of an allergic hypersensitivity, except instead of it being a protein that's being recognized by an immunoglobulin protein, it is to form that complex, it is uh, a receptor for the environmental chemical that triggers a neurologic response. You know, that's, I'm so glad we finally got you on here, Steve. It's, it's very interesting. I know you and I have talked about this privately a little bit, but I never quite had it structured this way, and it's been very helpful for me and I hope for our listeners. We've got to take a break and thank our sponsors, and uh, we'll be right back in about 90 seconds with the second half of our interview with Steve Teams. We're talking chemical sensitivities and uh, great stuff. Let's get, uh, get to thanking our sponsors and we'll be right back with Steve. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. 
Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview with Steve Teams. Steve, I, I see a question here that Cliff put together before we uh, came on to the show here, and I want to—I think this is a good way to start the second half. Does this multiple chemical sensitivity occur gradually over time, or does it occur with a single exposure, or can it be both? Uh, again, the analogy to allergic sensitization holds very clearly. And the, the answer is, I'll answer with a question first, which is, again, why does anyone become allergic to anything? Who becomes allergic? When do they become allergic? So there's a genetic predisposition that is a requirement. Some people just don't become allergic because they don't have the genetic predisposition to develop these immunoglobulin antibodies that form this complex. So because it's created by the adaptive immune system, it's related to immune activity and, and the potentiation of the innate immune system that upregulates that set of genes that turns on the adaptive immune system, which is looking to create this memory mechanism. It's the, uh, again, what a vaccine is all about and, uh, and what a vaccine adjuvant is all about that boosts the immune system to develop this, to create immunity. So the answer is that chronic exposure means, particularly to volatile chemicals, means that these chemicals are absorbed via inhalation and are in the blood, in the body, for the immune system to find. So when, for example, the innate immune system is upregulated by a viral infection or a bacterial infection, and at the same time these volatiles are in the blood, the adaptive immune system is now looking for those foreign non-self things in the body at the time that it's upregulated because of the infection and it finds these chemicals and identifies them as non-self and then may start to create this memory mechanism as though it were part of the you know virus or bacteria or whatever in other words it's it's in the wrong the chemical that's absorbed via inhalation is in the wrong place at the wrong time when the immune system is looking for what's going on here and it, it's mistakenly identified as being associated with the infection. So if someone has a, an acute exposure to high levels and they have this genetic predisposition and their immune system is upregulated, sensitization is induced. Uh, so in, in an allergic uh, scenario where, you know, who becomes allergic to peanuts or cats or dogs or of food, and when do they become allergic? People become sensitized to food, they develop food allergies at any point in their life. Um, so it has to do with how much of this you know, foreign non-self stuff is in the body when the immune system is looking for what shouldn't be there, and it finds these volatile chemicals because they're absorbed. So the, the more exposure one has over a period of time, the more likely that at some point in time the immune system will find it. If it's a very, very high exposure, 
and that exposure is associated with this potentiation of the innate immune system, you know, and um, they're, uh, you know, that's what the immune system sees in high concentration. It recognizes it more easily because there's more of this non-self foreign stuff in the body that it knows shouldn't be there, and it, it identifies it as something that it should mount a defense against. So it, it's called, you know, it's, the term is induction of sensitization, and that it, it's also very analogous to um, acquired immunity. And, uh, you know, these are the adaptive immune system component of the, the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system are the two major divisions of you know, the immune system. And they have different responsibilities. The innate immune system is what you're born with. The adaptive immune system is what creates the acquired immunity, the acquired allergies. And, and it, it, it's in that nexus that, that sensitization is induced to either a protein or a non-protein chemical. Cliff, okay. Let me turn it over to you, Cliff. Well, Joe and I have got a bunch more questions. And what I'd like to do is get you, I'd like to get through about eight or nine more questions. And I'd, I'd like you, and what I was going to try to do is get you to limit your answer to two minutes or less. And I'll watch the time and, you know, I'll, I'll stop you if need be, because I think they're all equally important. Challenging. I guess the first one is, in your experience, have you found that women are more prone to develop the symptoms? And if so, why? I, I, I don't know why. I believe that uh, women are more prone, but by no means. I, I mean, I can think back on many cases that I've looked at where, you know, you know, retired detective, you know, I, I show up at the house, he's wearing a, a particle mask sitting in his driveway in a lawn chair because he, he sleeps in this mask at night. And, and this guy, you know, was not, uh, you know, not a little whiny kind of guy at all. But I've seen many times. So it's certainly not just something that affects women or even affects women a lot more. I would say on balance, though, women are more in tune with their bodies more likely to say something, and more likely to um, uh, um, share that information where men are, are maybe not even aware that things are happening to them. Men are uh, much less likely to um, talk about it and uh, bring it to someone else's attention uh, as a, you know, because it may be viewed as a sign of weakness or, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a deficiency or something like that. So I, I don't know why, other than to say that, uh, um, you know, if they become sensitized at a much higher rate than men, it has to do with their adaptive immune system creating these uh, receptors. Thanks, Joe. Okay, what about, are people that maybe have emotional, like depression or, or mental health problems, are they more prone in your experience to having chemical sensitivities? No, I would say it's the other way around. I'd say that uh, people with chemical sensitivities um, are not normal, do not think uh, the way other people think in terms of um, when they go out, uh, what they, you know, and, and what's happening to their body. They, they may even doubt their own sanity because everyone's telling them there's nothing wrong with them when they're feeling all of these uh, symptoms. Um, and uh, actually, uh, Cassidy uh, Kutchenbecker, uh, Wisconsin, uh, did his master's thesis on 
um, mold exposure and depression. And there's and has over I think he has like something like 200 uh, literature citations as part of his thesis. And um, it, it really is, um, I think, putting the cart before the horse to say that someone is, uh, has mental issues and that somehow is related to uh, the chemical sensitivities. I think people with mental issues may imagine something else is happening to them uh, when they experience these, these symptoms than, you know, chemical sensitivities. Uh, so my feeling is that people who are chemically sensitive are not normal, do not think normally. There, there's, you know, they're, they're paranoid. There's you know, something around every corner might get them. Um, they can't go out. They can't be with people. They're isolated because of their they're forced to uh, avoid these exposures. And, and so over time, ultimately, it affects their personalities and, and may actually physically affect their because it does affect the autonomic nervous system. And then not to take more time, but ironically, one of the things that has been observed to help uh, to reduce the severity of chemical sensitivity symptoms is the um, taking of these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the um, anti-anxiety drugs, which if in fact affect neurotransmitter activity which makes sense to me because anything that slows down neurotransmitter activity would, would also slow down the uh, inflammatory effects of chemical sensitivities. Uh, although, ironically, someone might conclude that putting them on uh, you know, uh, anti-anxiety or antidepressant, antidepressant medication uh, proves that they were crazy in the first place. Uh, that's not true. I think what, what's really happening is that those same drugs that quiet down the nervous system through neurotransmitter uh, manipulation uh, also can affect uh, you know, the severity of the inflammatory reaction due to chemical sensitivity. I've I got to follow up on that, but I'm going to go ahead and, and ask a few more of these because this is fascinating to me. Now, when, when we have, let's say, a client comes to you and they've already made their own diagnosis. Let's face it, a lot of these people are just so frustrated. They're looking in every literature piece they can find. They're on chat rooms, etc. They make their own diagnosis. And then they come to you and they, they want confirmation of that diagnosis rather than to have you actually go out and, and do what you do. How do you handle that? Um. Uh, sometimes not that well, <laughs> um, to the extent that, that I actually have, uh, you know, I've been able to work for a client who was that insistent that, you know, I go out and find the mycotoxins that are making her sick, and she knows the mycotoxins are there because she can smell the mold, and meanwhile, she's a, she's a patient of uh, Dr. Grace Zim, who specializes in chemical sensitivities, because she knows she's chemically sensitive, but she still insists that it's the mycotoxins that are causing it because she can smell the mold. Meanwhile, to me, it's like, okay, if you can smell the mold, it's an exposure to the MVOCs, the microbial volatiles, which is a chemical exposure. Why isn't that the cause? And um, th this is someone I couldn't work with. Um, but the, right, the answer to your question is uh, to, uh, quote-unquote, find the real killer, to, to exonerate whatever it is they... Uh, suspect might be the cause. So if someone thinks, you know, it's uh, you know, the spot of mold in the attic that's causing them to be sick and, and it isn't, then you have to find out what is causing it. And, and the only way to do that is to 
have the individual um, conduct some experimentation, which I would coach them on, on how to, um, number one, get clear, become unmasked, meaning that uh, you have to, the analogy of cleansing your palate and wine tasting. If your nervous, you know, your neural receptors for these chemicals that you're sensitive to are firing all the time, you can't tell anything, just like the olfactory fatigue. These, these nerve endings are fired out, burned out. Um, so what I'll often tell people is, okay, you know, put several items that, you know, may, for example, uh, be sources of chemicals in the house, maybe a you know, moldy ceiling tile, maybe, uh, you know, some other uh, cleaning compound or whatever. But, um, you know, I'll tell them to uh, have it, put it outside the house, maybe seal it in a plastic bag. And when they come home from work or after they've been away for a while and they come in with a, a cleansed palate of fresh, uh, you know, fresh nerve endings, then they can assess these things one at a time outside of the environment where they're having a problem. And very often they'll be able to, to distinguish which, you know, which of those suspect things is actually causing them to react. And that's the only way to convince them what's actually occurring is for them to make that realization on their own doing controlled experimentation. Steve, we're just gonna, I think we're just going to go straight through. Dr. Wow is not here today, so I think we'll go straight through. We're going to just not even worry about a roundup because I, I'm, I've got still several questions we want to get to. Uh, Cliff, before I do, go on to the next one. Did you want to follow up on this, or do you just want to keep going ahead with what we uh, had planned? No, no, I think I'd like to keep going ahead because, you know, he's, he deals with it more than many of our listeners do, Joe, and it's just great. I mean, you know, you're getting great input from someone that's in the field that, you know, has a lot of experience, and these suggestions are really, real important, uh, I think, to our listeners. Well, I, I think the next one that I, I want to touch on, and I think you, you sort of answered this, Steve, but let's get a little more specific. When, when we know that multiple substances can cause the same symptoms how do you narrow down the investigation well again you have to use the sensitive individual as the instrument of detection there's no there's no other way to deal with that okay so um if you know all right so uh, if there's um you know a lot of dust in, in the air you know, then it may be. And, and of course, again, in the abstract, it's really hard to, to discuss. But then um, we did talk about, you know, different uh, biological versus uh, chemical versus particulate. Mm -hmm. And then there's crossover between them. So it, it does become difficult to, uh, you know, know whether it's the you know, irritant dust or something that's uh, absorbed onto the irritant dust that makes it a chemical exposure in addition to an irritant exposure. Um, and maybe one of those two things is actually the cause. Maybe it's the irritant effect, or maybe it's the chemical on the uh, particulate material. Um, so the only way to do it is to, again, design a controlled experiment. Um, and as I was saying before, with mold remediation, it, it, in practical sense, and, and for the listeners who deal with mold and mold remediation, you know, again, the the particles, the spores, the dust, the substrate dust uh, that, that mold is growing on, um, that all has to be removed because it contains all these things. It contains particles, it contains biological components, proteins, and it contains chemical uh, 
volatile chemical components. So that all has to come out and, and thoroughly come out. And then what you're left with makes it easier to determine that, you know, whether it's the volatiles or the particles when you've removed the particles. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, the peeling the onion phenomenon uh, where you have to, you know, get rid of the, you know, the stuff you know is bad and could be a problem before you can get deeper into it to, to possibly figure out, you know, more specifically, you know, what the environmental contaminant source is. Not all of the clients that you work for, uh, also not all of the clients that our listeners work for, can afford to start over and move to a new home or a new office. Can you provide some examples of successful remediation strategies you know, that have worked for your clients? Uh, sure. Well, it always begins with source removal is always the best approach. And, um, you know, for example, uh, a basement, uh, finished basement mold remediation where they uh, sheetrock and uh, insulation um, was removed, uh, you know, four feet uh, with the, you know, the, chair, the chair rail uh, the remediation uh, strategy where only the bottom of the wall is affected. So I walk in to do the post-remediation uh, inspection. And it still stinks. It smells bad. But all everything that got wet and grew mold is gone. But the place still stinks. I reach up behind the uh, remaining sheetrock in the wall. I pull out some, you know, paper-faced insulation. And I sniff the paper. It stinks. It's got to come out. The ceiling, acoustic ceiling tiles, and a suspended ceiling. Yeah, there's they're, they're an odor sink. They're still, you know, regardless of you know how well you've removed the original source these other porous surfaces are now secondary sources and have to come out. So, you know, again, it's about, you know, source removal. And, and where is the, you know, just because you've removed the, the obvious source doesn't mean there aren't secondary sources. Um, so, okay, so, so say, you know, you, you can do, remove these materials to the extent that it's feasible. So now you've got, um, you know, wood framing and uh, masonry, and that that isn't going to come out, center, <laughs> um, not feasibly anyway. And like and, um, and then how do you deal with that? Now you might be able to, um, I know, bake out procedures can can often help to you know uh, accelerate the aging process, drive volatiles off by increasing their vapor pressure and ventilate, um, sealing in these volatiles in the porous surface can be very effective. In fact, I would say that when people apply these um, encapsulants on porous surfaces as part of a mold remediation procedure, although most people don't seem to uh, even think about this, you know, their idea is, oh, it's going to, you know, kill the mold or prevent mold from growing back. The way it really is effective, in my mind, is by reducing the rate of off-gassing of these volatiles from these porous surfaces with with a membrane, you, you you're you know creating a coating over these surfaces that um, you know it decreases the uh, concentration in the air of of these chemicals that could be causing symptoms. Um, and then there's a point where I've had at least a half a dozen clients who were unable to live in their house, um, and and they couldn't afford to move, but they couldn't afford to live there either. And they weren't reacting to anything unusual. They were, I mean, it, it would be a house that you would go in and say. A little musty odor, um, but that's enough for for these individuals to have severe neurologic reactions, and um, they just can't live there. And you know, and, and of course, uh, one of the most successful things that I've found 
where people are complaining about chemical sensitivity symptoms for people who have, all right, they don't have the money. People might not have the money to move. Now, hopefully they have the money to afford the, some kind of ventilation, mechanical ventilation system, such as an energy recovery ventilator, ERV. Um, but ventilation is obviously the uh, one of the best ways of uh, reducing exposure by you know, dilution of the, the concentration of what's there. Um, but there's an energy you know, cost associated with that as well. But uh, so your, your basic strategies for uh, you know, removing contaminants would apply to chemical sensitivities. The only difference is, although you can always make the environment better by removing more of the odor sinks, by you know, removing the sources, secondary sources, um, and increasing ventilation, you know, there's a point where their degree of sensitization is so great that, you know, parts per, literally parts per billion, parts per trillion concentrations can still trigger these neurologic reactions to the point where there are, these people aren't going to be comfortable, aren't going to be well, and, um, you know, they have to, they have to simply avoid the environment, uh, you know, even if it's, you know, the home and the only place they can afford to live in, uh, and it gets ugly. I've even had sit-down conversations at the table where people decided that they were just going to, you know, stay there and be sick and die in this house because there was no feasible way that they could relocate or move or do anything about it. And they just, you know, made, made in front of me, made the decision that, you know, we're just going to you know, stay here until we die and be sick because they had no other, in their minds, had no other option. And I, of course, I told them that your health is more important. But in their minds, there was nothing they could do, nothing more they could do. Steve, let me let me ask a question on the coatings. Um, I would think that using a coating, I, I I understand sealing in the issue, but then these coatings have their own volatile organics that come off of them. That that uh, do you have any specific coatings you recommend? And I don't. I mean, I don't have any problem with using a manufacturer's name or whatever because that's what we're here to try and help people. Do you find any specific coatings work better than others in these situations? My answer to that is no, but my word of caution to anyone who's going to be applying these products in a client's home, the customer's home, is to get the approval of the occupants, particularly if there are chemical sensitivity issues, but in any case, get the approval of the occupants to use that particular product before you use it, whatever it might be. And, and, the reason is that um, different individuals can be sensitive to different components of any given formulation, and there's no general rule here. Um, you know, obviously, you know, oil-based things are, are more likely to be a big problem, but um, you know, for most of the coatings out there, you know, the, the classic, the you know, FiberLock and Foster products, and some of the other ones, uh, they they seem to be pretty odor-free once they dry. I really haven't seen that many problems with residual odors of the materials. Some of the cleaning compounds that are used uh, often leave a residual odor, and, and that's something I would be concerned about. But my rule of thumb would be that you know, before you contaminate someone's house with any particular product, get their permission. <laughs> Let them give them a sample of it. Let them evaluate it you know, right from the bottle. Um, if they're concerned about how it's going to be, it might not be bad um, when it's dry, but it might be bad when it's first applied, you know, then, then apply some to a sample piece of wood and, and let them 
you know, let it dry and then let them evaluate, you know, the product when it's cured um, and, and get their approval. Because for people who have chemical sensitivities, the worst thing you can do is, you know, render their house uninhabitable because you thought you were doing a good thing as a contractor by applying some, you know, product that does good marketing behind it. Uh, you know, it, it's all about the individual, and it's all about the individual uh, being able to tolerate any sort of contaminant. And if you're going to contaminate their home with it, <laughs> um, you better be very careful about you know what you're bringing into their house and uh, uh, how you're um, potentially affecting their ability to live there and live there comfortably. Steve, what are your changing subjects? What are your rules of engagement with a potential client? Well, what I require of a client is um, good faith, trust, and honesty, um, and, and, and developing a, a relationship whereby they're going to um, cooperate with me fully when I rely on the individual to be the instrument of detection, because they are the ones who are sensitive. You know, they, they have to, um, you know, it's like having a, any other instrument. They, they have to be a reliable instrument of detection for me to work with, and they have to be fully cooperative and honest. I, I can't work with someone who has some agenda, who, who uh, insists that it's not this, but it must be this. They have to, it's fine if they do that, if they have, you know, um, done some careful experimentation and they say, you know, no, I know it's not that probably stuck my nose in the bottle and I'm fine. And, and I trust that. And then, but if, if, you know, they're just, uh, if there's some ulterior motive or, um, you know, they don't want to admit something because, you know, they were the ones who selected the, uh, the laminate floor system that, that now is the source of volatiles in the house that it can't be that because, you know, they, they just, they, I can't work with someone who isn't going to be fully honest and uh, cooperative. So my, my rules of engagement really are that uh, I, I get full trust and cooperation in order for me to help them. Steve, I, I want to go back. I work with a lot of remediation contractors, and you mentioned cleaning products. I'm wondering if there's, and obviously we're just talking about chemically sensitive people here, are there any specific categories that you find more problematic for your clients with chemical sensitivities, you know, like the, the quats versus the phenol compounds versus the, um, I don't know, peroxide products, et cetera? Can you give some general rules of thumb on that, or is that too too broad of a thing? To well, I, I can tell you that, um, you know, I, I've, I know of uh, sporocide and remediation projects. I know of micropan remediation projects where it had nothing to do with the product itself. It had to do with the sensitivity of the occupant to the product because of a residual, I'll call it odor, but you know, odor being the, uh, you know, the, the way that you can identify the chemical exposure you know, by the sense of smell. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's, not the, it's not about the product. Uh, it's about the individual's reaction to the components in the product and the only way that, again, you can determine whether it's going to be problematic or not is to have the particular individual or individuals uh, evaluate this product before you contaminate the house with it. Um, and, uh, and I would say I would stay away from any, you know, saying that any product is better than any other product because individual sensitivities can vary tremendously. It's like saying what kind of mold is a bad mold. 
you know, anyone could become allergic to any kind of mold, and the VOCs produced by any mold colonies could cause sensitization in the first place. So, you know, people often become sensitized to whatever it is that they're chronically exposed to or acutely exposed to, and that can, it doesn't have to be, you know, particularly harmful or toxic or um, have a bad odor, a good odor. It's, it, that's irrelevant to the, to the chemical exposure and the uh, neurologic sensory mechanism that triggers the inflammatory cascade mediated by the nervous system. That's Steve, what expectation, if any, do you set when you work with a client? Well, um, I, first of all, I don't guarantee anything. I, I don't, <laughs> you know, one of the expectations uh, that I set is that, uh, you know, I don't put myself in a position of uh, guaranteeing that they'll be able to go back in the house or live in the house or that they'll be uh, symptom-free. Um, I know better than to do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, like I said, you can always make it better. Uh, but as, as far as uh, you know, the, the clients themselves, um, you know, the, the just, again, it's, it's, the rules of engagement are, you know, basically you know, trust, honesty, and, uh, you know, dealing in good faith is, is really all, you know, all I need. Um, and then there are clients that uh, I won't work for, because of the circumstances and, and, you know, my own liability exposure. Uh, for example. I mean, would you actually use those terms that, I, you know, I guarantee that I'm going to make it better? I can guarantee that I can make the environment better by removing certain things or by increasing ventilation, but I'm never going to guarantee that it will be good enough for okay. anyone that, that they'll be, prob- you know, symptom-free or that it won't be a problem. You can always make it better by removing... You know, things, when there's a finite amount of something in a particular environment and you're getting rid of it on a regular basis, it's getting better. These, yeah. these volatiles are off-gassing. There's less of them. But it could take many, many, many years for that to occur, including building materials. So, um, you know, yes, it's getting better, but is it going to be good enough? That's what I'm never going to guarantee, that it's going to be good enough. <laughs> Perfect. Steve, before we go, we always like to finish up by asking our guest if there's anything they'd like to add anything in particular that we missed you know that um, you want to make sure is included as a part of this interview well what I would encourage people to do particularly anyone that's a health uh, practitioner or medical practitioner is to read and understand some of these uh, hypotheses uh, you know in the publications by Dr. William Meggs regarding neurogenic inflammation and regarding um, the, uh, the neurobiology of chemical sensitivities in publications by uh, Dr. Martin Paul, P-A-L-L. If, if someone were to just really delve into some of these um, papers, uh, it's just so enlightening, so eye-opening, so obvious that uh, it wouldn't be controversial at all if, if um, people understood what was happening. It, what's, mi- what's missing is the mechanisms underlying chemical sensitivities. Everyone understands that some individuals are more sensitive. Every set of guidelines I've ever read recognizes that you know, different individuals have different sensitivities. Some people are more sensitive than others. But take it a step back. Why are some people more sensitive than others? Who is sensitive? Who becomes sensitive? Who becomes um, 
sensitize under what conditions of exposure. And, and when that is recognized, um, I think that, uh, you know, the, the dose won't make the poison anymore. Now it's about the immune system creating receptors that cause hypersensitivity reactions and, and all this, uh, you know, toxicologic uh, approach to, you know, what kind of mold is it? How toxic is the chemical? It's irrelevant, completely irrelevant when you're dealing with people who are chemically sensitized to a particular, you know, non-toxic, pleasant-smelling chemical that, you know, apparently, you know, you know wouldn't have any effect uh, on a human being or an animal in, in a toxicology study. But in reality, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a very, very uh, serious and uh, um, for, the, for the population that's affected, it, it is, I mean, not only life-altering, it is life-destroying. It it, it, people can't work. They can't find a place to live. Um, they can't go out in public. They can't travel in, in you know, planes or trains or, or uh, go into a shopping mall. They can't go shopping sometimes in, in a store. And that's why people don't see these severely multiple chemical sensitivity type people is because these people don't go out. They can't go out. And, uh, you know, that, um, it's, it's about the neurobiology and immunology, not about the toxicology. That's the point I would like to make more than anything. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, like I said earlier, we've been trying to get you on for a while now, and now I know why. I know Cliff uh, Cliff was able to pull it off, and I appreciate him uh, pressing a little bit harder, and we certainly appreciate having you on. Uh, oh, my so, pleasure. I, I, I want to get the message out, but, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like um, I'm just all alone in my, in my uh, you know, trying to convince people, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely certain and confident in what I know. But it's so hard when people, you know, think otherwise or have these preconceived notions and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, all they can think of is the dose makes the poison and, and, and you know, test, test, test. And, uh, you know, they get the test results and, and these, uh, you know, measurements are useless in, in so many instances. Well, we appreciate once again, having you join us. And, and I know that we'll, we'll be talking down the road and I look forward to seeing you again in the near future. Yeah, same here. All right. This is uh, Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to our guest this week, Steve Teams. We talked uh, you know, a lot of multiple chemical sensitivity, chemical sensitivity. We've got the in, uh, innate and adaptive immune system, and sometimes it goes right over the old head here. But uh, I kept up pretty good today, Cliff. also want to say thanks to the Z-Man, Cliff, another great show. Yeah, it was great. Uh, I appreciate you coming on, Steve, and uh We'll talk to you again in the future. I think the blog will be great. Uh, look forward to Cliff's blog. That'll come out with our newsletter for next week's show. We're still working on that next week's show. And, in fact, I think Steve gave us a couple good exam a couple good ideas there, Cliff. Maybe we'll uh, try and work on getting a few of the people that he looks to for uh, confirmation of some of his thoughts and um, also to help, you know, help formulate some of those uh, opinions. I'd, I'd love to try and get one of those MDs or uh, PhDs on that he discussed. But anyway, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to my co-host, the Z-Man. Of course, today's guest, Steve Teams. 
our engineer, Jessica Lawson. No glitches today. Good job there, Jess. A uh, big smile on her face. And, of course, to our growing group of loyal listeners, we'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Thank you.